You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you in further. You step forward little by little not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. everyone and welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. And today, it's resurrection time. We are talking about the resurrection and we got two of the best guys out there to talk about it. And that's both Gary Habermas and Mike Lacona. I mean, some, some of you out there who are apologetics fanboys, you're, you're dreaming and celebrating right now hearing both of them together on this topic. Now, before we get into what we're going to be talking about, let me uh, have them introduce themselves. Gary, tell us a bit about uh, your academic background in this. Well, uh, very briefly, Nick, um, my undergraduate degree, I had three majors. I really had, I went to school much longer than I needed to, 150 hours or something, but I had three majors and three minors and uh, went on for an MA and that was in uh, philosophical theology slash Christian thought and my PhD in history and philosophy of religion from Michigan State University. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, how did you get to be doing what you're doing? What's a little personal background info on you? Well, if you mean doing what I'm doing, if you mean apologetics in general and resurrection in particular, um, Many, many years ago, uh, I had a goodly amount of uh, doubt. In fact, it dominated my life. I mean, the two things at that time in my life were uh, sports, uh, primarily uh, uh, football and hockey, and uh, research. And the research came in an effort to answer some of my questions because I was raised in a Christian home, a, a German Baptist church, and uh, the the questions were just a pain, to tell you the truth. And in those days, I mean, you know, back in the Middle Ages, there there was there was like nobody around. You couldn't just, first of all, no such thing as email, and nobody I could just pick up the phone and call. In fact, I tried with one guy who had a PhD in New Testament from from. Uh, Princeton Seminary, and he did his dissertation on the resurrection, and he was uh, very kind and everything, but but he just said, you got too many questions, it would take me too long, and so he talked to me once, and that was it, so I didn't have anywhere to go, and I was kind of left on my uh, own and had to plug through things myself, and after a number of years, I, I uh, kind of gave up on solving the problem. And my conclusion was, okay, uh, the resurrection can be, uh, you know, you can give a testimony. You can say, I believe it. You can have uh, personal reasons, but you can't close the door on a factual case. You just can't get there. Things are lacking. And so I walked away from it for a while. came back years later. So I would generally say I went through at least 10 to 15 years of doubt. 
and then probably another 10 years uh, a little more sporadically. So it's a long time. But I mean, I started kind of early so uh, in my life for that. So, uh, you know, by the time I was getting ready to teach, uh, I was thankfully pretty much coming through it. Mm-hmm. Well, welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast again. You're one of our favorite guests here. And now I'd like to move over to another one of our favorite guests who I interviewed last week, if you got to hear that, although I'm a bit biased. And I'd like to point out when he comes on that this is one of two people in the world that I could say, welcome to the show, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That is good. <laughs> and in case anyone doesn't know about it, something that makes it interesting is while Mike is my father-in-law, Gary was the one who introduced me to his daughter, Allie, and he was the one who married us. That is correct. So, Gary, if a project ever doesn't work, you have a business in matchmaking that you can consider. There you go. That's a minor. That's a minor. Called it gmatch.com. <laughs> That's good. So, Mike, tell us about how you, about uh, your academic background here in Vince. Well, I, uh, I went to uh, Liberty University for my uh, graduate work, uh, where I was doing a degree in New Testament studies, and um, I started to have doubts, and uh, some of my roommates were doing a master's degree in apologetics. I had no interest whatsoever in apologetics at that point, and, um, but they said that Gary Habermas, one of their professors, was a real approachable guy. So I figured, well, cool. That's who I'd want to talk to. I was afraid to talk to the New Testament profs I had. I uh, just fear that they would uh, rebuke me. Now, I did have uh, one or two of them that maybe I wouldn't have thought that about. So I don't know why I didn't go to them. Maybe I was just talking to my roommates and uh, they told me about Gary. And so uh, I, I remember going to his office, knocking on the door and he came in and I introduced myself and I said I'd never had him for a course, of, uh, of course, but um, I'd had some doubts and my roommates had uh, suggested I see him and he invited me in, spoke with me. And unlike what Gary just said a few moments ago, where he really didn't have anyone to, you know, talk about his doubts with them, I did. I had I had Gary um, and even though I didn't know him, he took some time and talked with me. And then later on, after finishing my classwork, my coursework for grad school, I ended up having several um, countless phone calls with him. And, um, you know, I, honestly, I, I don't know that I'd be a Christian today if it weren't for Gary Habermas. He's just uh, he's invested in me and I regard him as uh, my dearest friend. I'd do anything for him. He's just a, an amazing guy. Some someone sent me a text or an email or Facebook message or something the other day, a picture with him, and uh, uh, I said, you know, there's a guy that um, he models meekness when I, Jesus talks about blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. That that's Gary Habermas. Yeah, I think I tagged you in that post. Okay, you sure? You sure? Yeah, yeah. I, I think it was Jonathan Man. Jonathan Man, wasn't it? Yes. Yes. Okay. So you tagged me. All right. So, um, um, anyway, so that's how I came to know Gary. And, um, but I, I went on 
several years. I mean, I wasn't even going to finish my master's degree. I'd finished coursework in 85 and I wasn't even going to finish it, but he kept encouraging me. Finally, I, I did my thesis and comprehensives in 2000, got my MA, thought I was done with education at that point. Gary, you remember being in your house after that, uh, right after graduation, Debbie and I came over and, um, I said, so doc, am I done with my education? And you said, well, what do you want to do with, what do you want to do with your life? And I said, well, I want to teach. I want to do apologize. I mean, I want to do apologetics. Well, do you want to teach in a university? No, I have no desire to do that. Well, you're done. I thought, yeah, all right, I'm done. But three years later, I was uh, enrolled in a PhD program because I wanted to learn more and wanted to get the credential. But then later on, the credential was the least uh, important thing of the PhD. The most important thing was just getting to the bottom line about the resurrection. So it took me a little longer to get my PhD than normal. Um, it took me six years, but my dissertation was about three and a half to four times the size of an average dissertation. I was just obsessed with it. So I got my PhD back in, um, um, I think it was April of 2009, and now I teach at the wonderful Houston Baptist University. <laughs> Yeah, those don't know. There's a lot of ribbing that goes on between Mike and Gary on that front. Yep. I mean, after all, Gary, uh, they've got a great school there at Liberty, a good program in apologetics. And for, you know, we're happy to, you know, refer all the students that are unable to make it into our program. They just, you know, aren't good enough. We refer them to places like Liberty. <laughs> now, um, Gary, something bad that Mike was talking about, though, I'd like to come back to you on because you read it of a post I sent you about reaching Roger Maxson and such, my friend, who was able to escape atheism after he got in touch with me. And hearing about how you invested in Mike so much and that's why he is where he is today, blessing so many other people. It's mommy, you tell me you don't understand people who can speak at all these conferences everywhere but don't have time to invest in individuals. Yeah, uh, that's that's just a real key. I, I, uh, it's not always convenient. In fact, I got a letter today, and it's the fourth one in about 10 days or so, saying, you know, I mean, the people sound like, help, help, I'm losing my faith. And it's not always convenient. I'm not trying to sound like a superhero, but I mean, actually, I have no reason to sound like a superhero. It, it, it bothers me sometimes when the people do it. It's like, don't you know I have a deadline? Uh, but I, I don't know how you read the New Testament and think that you don't have time for people. I mean, I, I look for how Jesus modeled things, and and we know from the text that he was dead tired sometimes. I mean, he went up in the mountain alone to pray and had to stay up there all night in order to get away from people. I think that's the implication sometimes. But how tired would you be standing there and healing everybody in the town and in the region and then preaching? And he always went the extra mile for people. And, and I don't know how we can do anything but but use his life example as one for us. And I will tell you, too, when people work through their doubts, then you're very, very thankful you spent time with them. Mm-hmm. Now, what we're going to be doing today is I went on the Internet and I asked people to send me questions about the resurrection for you two to answer. Now, you two have no idea what questions I've got here, do you? No. Nope. Okay. Now, one question I did get, I'm not going to include in the pile because I think it's one that's on a lot of people's minds, and it's one that 
gets asked a lot, and it's for Gary, and this is the question of, when is your next book coming out on the resurrection? 21's not enough, huh? Nope, it's not. We want more. Yeah. yeah, it might be 22. I don't even know. I don't keep, I, I don't always have that number fresh in my mind. Um, if you mean the big one, uh, the magnum opus, man, that's frustrating. I I am sorry to say it's going to take a long time, but I've done, um, I've got, oh, I don't know. I haven't counted in the last uh, couple months, but I'd say uh, 800 pages, I think the count is. And another approximately sixteen hundred pages to edit. I, I don't mean that to sound like just read it through and it's okay. It's going to take some reworking on those sixteen hundred pages. But those two together, of course, would be about twenty four hundred pages. I would still have, I think, at least eight hundred or a thousand more pages to write. So it's wearying, but I'm buoyed by the thought that. That uh, if this came out and it could help people and someone made a comment, someone I really respect in apologetics made a comment to me the other day and said, hey, that could be uh, that could be the standard for generations. I, I don't think that that'll be the case just because books don't have that kind of shelf life. But if it has any kind of uh, ministry value for people, that is my goal. And I don't want it to die with me. I'd like to click my fingers and have it done. I, I will say one other thing, uh, Nick. Um, just recently, um, let me back up just a, a slight uh, touch here. Daryl Bach and I were doing some uh, lectures together some time ago. And, and I don't know, to this day, I think he was probably trying to spur me on, not criticize but he was telling me how long it took him to write his two-volume work on Luke. And I said, how long did it take you? And he said something like, I forgot the exact time, but he said something like uh, 20 years. And I thought, great. And he said, he looked right at me and he said, you're not ever going to write that magnum opus. And it kind of stung a little bit, but um, I think he was kind of spurring me on. I wrote him an email just months ago. And I said, hey, Daryl, I want you to know, I don't know if you meant it this way, but that was just a real push for me. And I've got 800 pages done. And he wrote back and gave me a really good idea, I think. And that is when it gets time to publish this thing or part of it, uh, to work with a company that will bring it out in a series of smaller books uh, so that people can get the portions they want. And then when it's done, have the whole thing bound in, in uh, like three large volumes so it can sit there on the shelf for somebody who wants it that way. And I thought, wow, th that would just increase the ministry value. And that's what I'm all about. So all I can tell you is that we'll see, but I have a lot of work to do. Okay. Well, let's jump into the questions now. I'm just pulling these out random, and if you're out there listening, I might not get to your question. There's no guarantee because I'm just doing this random. First question is to both of you, of course. Unless you resort to a self-authenticating witness of some sort, is it the case that the core of your beliefs about the resurrection stand or fall on the veracity of the four Gospels? Go ahead, Mike. I've been talking too much. 
Well, okay. Um, no, I, I don't think the veracity of the Christian faith stands or falls on the four Gospels. Uh, if Jesus rose from the dead, Christianity was true before any of the Gospels were written. So how could they? How could Christianity be falsified if there were problems with the Gospels? Um, and Gary and I have both argued that we can get to the resurrection without even using the Gospels. Uh, we can use it through Paul, and we can get back to the Jerusalem apostles uh, with and, and their core gospel message and what they were preaching about the resurrection with more certainty than we, historical certainty, that is, than we can through the gospels. So, um, of course, we would lose a lot. We would lose most of Jesus's teachings if we didn't have the gospels We'd, and, and uh, a, a lot we'd lose. But we wouldn't at all lose Christianity, the truth of Christianity, if the Gospels were shown to be historically unreliable accounts of Jesus. Gary, anything you want to add? No, I, I, I'm good with that. I think I, I, I just had one of my best PhD students recently, I mean, who sat through all of this and has a lot of background on resurrection. And, he, and, he, and, and just finally he said, so why do we go with Paul? He said, it just seems a little backward to me. Um, we should use the Gospels. And I sent him a real quick email. I mean, seven, eight lines. And I said, here's a half dozen reasons for starting with Paul. And he wrote back and he said, okay, gotcha. I'll never question it again. And it, it is kind of that quick. But I, I would agree with uh, folks who develop detailed arguments, not using a minimal facts argument, but by using... A reliability argument, and I think it can be done with the Gospels. I don't yeah. think the argument is going to be as strong. It's definitely not going to be as succinct, but uh, I think it can be done. We just have ways to go after this thing. We have more than one path, and uh, I'll just put a plug in here for a, a, a friend, uh, Jay Warner Wallace, Jim Wallace. I was just in an apologetics conference last weekend and got to hear two lectures with Jim. I've heard him before, but he does he he loves the minimal facts argument of the resurrection. In fact, he told me he thinks on resurrection it's it's definitely the way to go. But he was doing the life of Christ and he was doing a reliability argument using legal uh, apologetics. I've heard a fair number of people doing legal apologetics, and I told him afterwards. I have never heard such a strong case for the reliability method in a single lecture using empirical tests. He used eight of them, and um, it was amazing. So I, I just think it's exciting that we have different ways to get there. Yeah, you know, with the reliability thing, too, I think one way we could do it is authorship of the Gospels. Now, I know that might sound crazy at first, but you take— the majority of scholars today, although it's a slight majority, the majority of New Testament scholars today grant the traditional authorship of Mark and Luke. And the traditional authorship of Mark is that Mark, Mark's primary witness was, was uh, Peter, the lead apostle and one of Jesus' three closest disciples. So in, in that case, you'd think what we have in Mark, there's going to be quite a bit of eyewitness testimony and that's good. Same thing with Luke. The majority of scholars, New Testament scholars today would say that um, the early church was correct, that Luke, Luke's primary sources would have been Paul, would have been Mark, 
Um, would have been other eyewitnesses, as he claims in the first couple of verses of his gospel, um, perhaps the hypothetical Q source that uh, scholars discuss. So that's pretty good. Um, John, even though the majority of scholars today do not accept the traditional authorship of John, the son of Zebedee, and one of Jesus' three closest disciples, the majority of Johannine scholars today grant that whoever the author of John's gospel was— um, they got their, their primary source was one of Jesus's disciples. Again, eyewitness. Matthew's a little more difficult and, and fuzzy, of course. But you've got Mark, Luke, and John all getting their information from uh, you know a significant amount of it coming from eyewitnesses. And of course, then if you look at um, things such as multiple independent sources, especially between John and let's say Mark. Now it's like, gosh, they're talking about the resurrection, things like that, that's coming from eyewitness sources. That's that's pretty strong. I don't think we typically present cases like that. I certainly haven't. But the more I've studied the authorship issue and have seen where even the majority of scholars are willing to go with authorship and granting eyewitness testimony, uh, just one removed with at least three of the Gospels, I think we can make a case based on gospel reliability. We do have to be able to answer more in terms of ob- objections, but it can be done, like like Gary says. Okay. Yeah, I, I mean, really, Nick, I guess in a sentence or two, there's there's no room for despair on this. Yeah, I think I think the minimal facts are untouchable as a as the best method. But if someone said to me, for whatever crazy reason, from now on, you can only use the reliability approach. I would be good to go with that. I mean, the the reliability approach is much more sophisticated today than it was 20 years ago. And we might remember Richard Baucom's material too. Um, Just, and and he's far from the only one. Um, Paul Barnett has done some really good things. An Australian historian. They're just, they're just, Plenty of good stuff. This is a wonderful day to be alive regarding the truth of Christianity. Craig Blomberg's uh, great book, The Historical Reliability of the Gospels. And John. Yeah. And Uh, his book, John. Yeah. By the way, Craig Blomberg also has a new book coming out, Reliability of the New Testament. Yes, listeners, I've gotten in touch with him. We're going to work on getting him back on here again. Yeah, I've got that book on pre-order. Let's move to the next question here. This one is, can you refute the fact that aliens resurrected Jesus? I, I'd like Gary to answer this because, <laughs> believe it or not, when I went to his office having doubts, he said, well, what's causing doubts? And I said, well, how do we know that it wasn't aliens that raised Jesus or that he was an alien rather than he was who he claimed to be? So Gary's the perfect one to answer this. Yeah, and Mike, I think we addressed that in um case of the resurrection of Jesus, didn't we? We did along with Elvis and a few other uh, interesting ones. Uh-huh. So there's some wild theses like that. And and I think one of the best things to point out when we answer that is, and, and questions of this ilk, um, I tell my grad students, Christians are great counterpunchers, meaning using the boxing or martial arts analogy. Um, if we get hit, we can come back with good stuff aimed at that response. But Christians aren't the best at putting a good case forward without being hit first. And and I, I, I tell my students a couple things. Number one, 
I would say to a person like this, some Christians are not 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 uh, comfortable with this, but I don't see a problem. I would say, uh, yeah, okay, well, you might be right, but you're almost assuredly wrong. And to paraphrase David Hume, wise men choose probabilities. So why should I look at such a distantly improbable position? And, you know, I, I don't know why we have to, why we have to answer everything in detail, and they have to answer almost nothing. They can attack, attack, attack. And then when you ask them for their reasons, almost no philosophy or religion today has good comeback on things. I'm tired of it being a one, a one, uh, kind of a one-off uh, enterprise. But I think there's plenty of, of answers. And when I tell the guy, well, you can't, you can't uh, go there with any good reasons. I mean, give me, you know, sometimes I say it this way, guys. I'll say, hey, fellas, listen, you've listened to me umpteen times and or depending on who the person is. Uh, this stuff is in print. We've got so much material out there. Get the book, Case for the Resurrection of Jesus. And Mike, Mike did the majority of that book and did just uh, uh, an excellent job, not to mention his, his huge book, which is uh, the best evidential treatment out there, I think. And um, so, so we've got that stuff. And, and I would go right to talk to them about the evidence first. But, uh, you know, I often say to them, fellas, to the doubters, fellas, we've got so much first century material here. There's nothing like this in the ancient world, certainly not in the ancient religions. So, I'll tell you what, since I've already made my case, I'm going to sit back and let you make your case for aliens or Elvis or some view we don't know of in the first century. I mean, just any little response. And I'm going to say, look, we've had so many comebacks. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to let you make your case. And while I may have given you, oh, I mean, Bart Ehrman gives 12, 12 independent sources for the crucifixion. Guys, I'm not going to ask you for 12. Um, why don't you give me just three or four primary independent sources from the first century for your view? So I'm just going to sit back and listen to your evidences. Go ahead. And you, and you know what's going to happen? I've done it a lot. They're going to go, um, I don't really have any evidence. I just wonder what you thought. Okay, great. Well, I just told you what I thought. So, Mike, anything you want to add? No, I, I I agree with Doc on that. Um, I mean, and sometimes I I don't know. Maybe I, we even said this in the book. Um, yeah, well, Jesus was an alien. He was certainly not of this world. You know. <laughs> so, um, but but Gary's being humble about you know the part I had in that book. It is true that I wrote most of the book, but a lot of that was because I was standing on the show at that time when we wrote it. I was standing on the shoulders of research that he had done. So um, just so uh, we're clear on that. Yeah. Hey, you know what, guys, on that on that alien thing that Mike just uh, said, uh, I remember a professor of mine in uh, school years back. I only spent a few semesters of my training at a Christian school. But this guy said, hey, if you guys ever need a sermon and uh, you want to come up with something for, like, say, Missions Week, he said, why don't you preach a sermon on 
Jesus is a strange visitor from another planet, and he came to earth for the purpose of setting up his kingdom, and I'm going to uh, outline for you his chief message. What I mean is his whole approach was Jesus visited this planet from elsewhere, and it's the greatest mission story ever told. So, you know, I think you could say, yeah, that's kind of the New Testament answer, you know, just to give a just a strange twist. Mm -hmm. Let's go to the next question. Jesus was resurrected to be raised with sting of death. When a culture is hostile to the very existence of sin, how do you convince them they need a savior to erase the stain of sin for eternal life? You want to go for that, Doc? Well, Mike, I, I'm sorry. I didn't hear every single word. So I'll either have to have Nick repeat it or you can just start, Mike, and I'll take a lead from whatever you say. I, I guess that as I'm, as I'm understanding that the question, you know, when our culture doesn't recognize sin, how do we convince them of their need of its need for a sinner? Ah. Um, I, I think that's just where uh, we're going to have to focus. You know, w w these things are sin. Well, tell them about what, what God demands. He demands holiness. And we could focus on certain things such as, all right, well, I think we all would agree that cold-blooded murder is wrong. Torturing little babies for the fun of it is wrong. Um, you know, their rape is wrong. Slavery is wrong. All these, you know, you start with those kinds of things. And, and maybe just focus on those and say, all right, you may not have raped, at, raped or killed. Have you lied? Is it, is it wrong to lie to someone to their disadvantage so that you may get the advantage? Um, most people would say, no, that's wrong. Well, have you ever done that? Yeah. Have you ever shoplifted something? Have you ever, um, have you ever bullied someone or called them a name or said something that hurt them and you did it to hurt them? Um, or you... You uh, even when you were a kid, you you um, joined others who were mocking someone who was disabled or who got a bad haircut or something like that. You know, you could point out things that I think everyone would agree is wrong. And say, well, you know, here's what God says about sin. Um, well, I don't think that God would do that. Well, what are you basing that on? Um, what are you basing your thoughts about God and what he will do and what he won't do? I mean, you're just saying, I think that. This is what I believe and not believe. Well, what are you founding those beliefs on? And, you know, here's what I, I'm thinking about the Bible. I'm founding my beliefs uh, on the Bible. And, um, and not just because I believe the Bible, but because I believe Jesus rose from the dead. And because of that, we should respect who he claimed to be and what he taught. You could go to the Sermon on the Mount at, at that point, and, um, where it talks about, you know, calling your brother a fool. Um, or looking on a woman to lust for her uh, and things like that. And just pointing out, hey, God is looking for someone to be holy. He's from the inside. If you're holy on the inside, your, ex your actions are, are going to reflect that. Um, you had the Pharisees who tried to be righteous on the outside, but they were evil on the inside. And so it led to all sorts of scheming. So, yeah, they did some righteous deeds, but they did some very unrighteous deeds, like taking advantage of widows, etc. So Jesus wants us holy on the inside. How do you feel about being holy on the inside? Do you think you're there? Um, so, uh, you know, we're in need of a Savior. So I, I guess the focus on those kinds of things could be helpful. Anything to add, Gary? Yeah, I'll just add a, a, a real quick follow-up. Um, 
I will often tell a person, you know, let's let's emphasize, let's put our emphasis on where the evi- where the emphasis needs to be placed. To me, the primary question is, did the resurrection of Jesus happen? The next question is, in what context did it happen? In other words, who was raised from the dead? Uh, was there a resurrection event, and what is the divine action pattern that surrounds this event? To me, if we put first things first and answer those questions, the sin question, uh, the identification of sin, which I think Mike just did a, a great job with to, to wade through it and ask you if you've ever done these things. Um, to me, the, the sin question follows because what you can say is, look, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, we're obviously not going to sit here and talk about how important his teachings are. But if Jesus was raised from the dead in a context of, of theological significance, then if he says the answer is to provide a remedy uh, for sin. Take Mark ten forty five, a very well respected passage. I've come to give my my life a ransom for many. In some sense, he had to pay for something. Um, Paul says, and yet we while we we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. If that's the New Testament answer, sorry, you're sinners. What are you going to do about it? Then, if someone has already decided that the resurrection is true then it's kind of stupid to ignore the framework and the vicinity of the answer. Uh, what are you going to do, admit the resurrection and then admit Jesus was something special and say, I reject his message? Then why are you studying the resurrection in the first place? So once you have a resurrection, I think we have to look to the message of the one who tells us what it was about. <clears throat> okay. With a number of studies coming out indicating that eyewitness testimony is unreliable, how would this affect the minimal facts approach? <laughs> you know, I'll jump in real quick with a quick comment since I already introduced um, Jim Wallace, Jay Warner Wallace. When he was doing this reliability thing the other day, and I, I think the answer is the same at this point, but he was doing it. He said, he said some people think uh, that we can't remember anything because they've had some, you know, maybe some bad times trying to remember things or being called down on it and proven incorrect and uh, and so on. And he said, he said, you know something, if you ask me what I got my wife for Valentine's Day 2016, he said, I don't know. In fact, he said, I'll bet you my wife doesn't know. But if you ask me what I got for Valentine's Day for my wife in 1988, I would talk your arm off because, you see, we were married on that day. And his point was, we have a tendency, and I think Balkum studies and Jesus and the Eyewitnesses confirms this very nicely. We have studies which indicate that things which have a special place in your heart, I mean, you know, first child, uh, wedding, we have a tendency to remember those things. And why not when you when you learned about the resurrection and found out that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? And I'll say one other thing real briefly. In uh, Galatians 1, and again in Galatians 2, in texts fully accepted by critical scholars, uh, 
and that's the emphasis there. Scholars, not anybody who writes blogs out of their basement and calls himself uh, published. Um, <laughs> scholars, they're going to concede Galatians 1 and 2. Bart Ehrman says one of the neatest things about Paul is he was in the right place at the right time, knew the other eyewitnesses, and questioned them, questioned them about it. Okay, well, not only do we remember important events, but number two, when the the memories of in, maybe the most important event in your in your uh, life coincide with others who have gone through the same. You know the old saying: "There's two heads; two heads are better than one." Now we have reason to believe that strong testimony for me, strong testimony from us. And I like their First Corinthians fifteen eleven. Whether desire they just talking about the resurrection appearances and context. That's what Paul just mentioned. Whether desire they. So we teach, and so you believe. Paul's saying, I don't care if you ask me. I don't care if you ask him. You're going to get the same message. Same thing in Galatians 2. So I think that one-two punch, important facts and corporate memory from other very well-placed people who were there, I think that's a knockout answer. Mike, anything to add? Yeah, I guess uh, I'd refer you know listeners back to... Um, the podcast that we did last week where we talked about the historical reliability of the Gospels. And um, um, among several points that were made during that time, we talked about one of the criteria for determining whether literature was historically reliable is does the author um, or their sources, did the author or their sources have the capacity to uh, report the past accurately. And when we come to Jesus's um, deeds, we find that to be the case. And this would relate to what Gary said about, you know, was it a big event? Um, recall that um, uh, I mentioned how Debbie and I watched Vietnam and HD about almost two years ago. And during that time, uh, the first episode has Joe Galloway, who was the combat reporter who is portrayed in the movie We Were Soldiers with Mel Gibson and Sam Elliott, which, a true story, where U.S. forces went in. It was their first major engagement with North, the North Vietnamese Army in, in the Vietnam War. It was four days of very intense combat in November 1965, in which about, I think it was 251 American soldiers died, and another 245 were injured. And... Uh, just an amazing story, uh, an amazing movie. And uh, so Galloway, you could see as they were interviewing him, he teared up at, at times because you could see decades later this was still impacting him. And I'll never forget one point in the interview, and I just thought it was so profound that um, I transcribed it. And, and, it, and let me read you his quote. He says, I left that landing zone X-ray battlefield knowing that young Americans had laid down their lives so that I might live. They had sacrificed themselves for me and their buddies. What I was learning was that there's some events that are so overwhelming that you can't simply be a witness. You can't be above it. You can't be neutral. You can't be untouched by it. Simple as that. You see it, you live it, you experience it, and it will be with you all of your days. Now, 
I thought about that after he said that as of course, you know, you watch something like band of brothers um, and you just see how these guys got connected and became family. And, and then you, you can imagine how during Vietnam, how some of these soldiers who were fighting in combat with one another, they just became like family. And of course, something as major and traumatic as combat, you're going to remember that it's going to, it's going to be with you for the rest of your life. And so I got thinking, well, what if you had been a disciple and walked with Jesus for one and a half to three years? You had seen him give sight to the blind, heal the deaf, heal paralytics, cast out demons, walk on water, raise the dead. And then you saw him actually scourged and crucified. And then shortly thereafter, you saw him alive again and in perfect health. Do you think that that would leave? the same kind of impact that would be as deep and lasting as those four days of combat left on Joe Galloway? Well, of course it would, and even more. So um, Jesus performed deeds that would have been memorable. And then when we look at his teachings, his words, that would have also been memorable because they are, this isn't something that was just heard once, like Patrick Henry's famous liberty or death speech, um, or say, uh, President Obama's um, State of the Union address. Do you remember anything about that from this past January? You know, I, I don't. I don't remember any of them. Any president's State of the Union, just, well, we've only heard it once. So unless you're really into politics and studying this stuff, you're not going to remember it. But the disciples had traveled with Jesus for one and a half to three years, and he probably did not have, he, he probably didn't come up with a new sermon for every village and town he went into. So he may have had I mean, we're just guessing we may have had a dozen or so sermons. And so they heard him preach the same things over and over and over and over and over. And then they run out and preach the same things over and over and over and over and over. And they went out in two so they could uh, correct one another. Then they came back and they heard Jesus preach again an endless amount of times. And then after he dies, rises and, and goes away, then they go out and for the next several decades are preaching the same thing over and over and over and just hundreds of times. So. It comes down to it, you know, when this tradition that had been preached, heard and preached countless numbers of times. Um, and now the gospel authors are getting this from the eyewitnesses themselves. Uh, of course, not only his deeds, but also his words are going to be quite memorable, not even to mention what's behind oral tradition and, you know, all the other kind of mnemonic devices that they had to remember teaching. So, yeah, I, I think that when it comes to oral teaching and remembering the, the words and deeds of Jesus, um, we have good reason, excellent reason to believe that the Gospels are historically reliable recollections of those things. Okay. I'd like to go on to the next question. Mike, this one's aimed at you, but Gary can jump in afterwards if he wants. Since Lacona believes that a historical genre can lead us to believe that some of the miracle accounts from the New Testament did not in fact happen, on what grounds does he determine whether the resurrection actually happened and why is this different than other passages? You know, I think Al Mordor raised the same kind of concern for you once, Mike, so here's your chance to answer it. Yeah, um, well, uh, when we are talking historical genre, I mean, that doesn't mean that everything within a biography or a history is, uh, is intended to be understood as historical. Take, for example, Jesus's parables, right? We don't, uh, we wouldn't take those as historical. Um, they are parables and they're meant, they're fictional stories meant to teach lessons. Um, most New Testament scholars, even evangelicals, 
think that there are uh, many elements in Jesus's Olivet Discourse that are not meant to be interpreted um, in a historical sense or a literal sense. Um, you know, you take the book of Acts. Now, that is just flat out history, um, when, you know, in terms of genre. Um, nevertheless, when you go to Acts chapter 2 and they're speaking in tongues, uh, Peter gets up and says, hey, they're not filled with wine. Uh, they're not drunk. This is what Joel the prophet spoke of. And then you have Joel chapter 2. Um, uh, where it talks about young men having visions, old men having dreams, and the Spirit of God uh, comes upon them. And, and in that same text, it says, so um, uh, call on the name of the Lord and be saved. And so Peter basically says when he's responding in Acts chapter 2 that this is what has occurred today. You know, well, it's not these guys are drunk. No, it's the fulfillment of Joel the prophet. Young men will have visions. Old men will have dreams. The sun will go dark. The stars will fall out of the sky. And those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, we don't really think the sun went dark that day or the stars fell out of the sky. That is just apocalyptic imagery. It's special effects. It's That's a, a means of the genre, that kind of talking. It, it's kind of... Um, like we would say, 9-11 was an earth-shaking event, or hell will freeze over before um, the Iranian government becomes Christian, or something like that. Now, um, in answer, to, so the first point there is, even though we're talking about a historical genre such as biography and history, it doesn't mean that every element of that genre is intended to be understood as historical. Now, the follow-up question to that, I think, is a, a very meaningful and important one. If we allow something to be interpreted in a non-historical sense, for example, uh, the saints raised at Jesus' death in the Gospel of Matthew, if we allow for that not to be understood in a historical sense, but interpreted as apocalyptic, apocalyptic imagery, then what about the resurrection of Jesus itself? Well, I think that that's very easy to answer because, again, we look at what the literature says. We look at the authorial intent so far as we can ascertain it. And I think it's fairly easy to ascertain the authorial intent when it came to reports of Jesus' resurrection. When you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and 1 Corinthians is written prior to any of the Gospels, um, Paul says, look, if Christ was not raised from the dead, then we as Christians will not be raised. And if we're not going to be raised from the dead, this life is all there is, and the Christian life is not worth living. But then he goes on to say, but Christ has been raised, therefore we will be raised, therefore the Christian life is worth living. Now that argument makes no sense whatsoever if uh, the disciples meant for the resurrection you know, just as apocalyptic imagery or not, you know, being meant to be understood in a historical sense. It only makes sense if they were preaching the resurrection of Jesus as an event that occurred in history. So that is, I think, the main argument that I would give. I would also point out that it's quite interesting and helpful to observe how the critics, the early critics of Christianity responded. Um, you had things such as we find reported in the Gospel of Matthew that the Jewish leadership were going around saying that the disciples stole the body. Justin Martyr in the middle of the second century says the Jewish leadership were still claim, making the same claim in, that, in his day. 
You've got Tertullian around the year 200 saying that some were claiming that the gardener uh, had a lettuce patch. There was a gardener with a lettuce patch near the tomb, and he reburied the body of Jesus so that uh, people would not trample over his lettuce. And that accounts for the empty tomb. You've got Celsus in the middle of the second century saying that uh, Jesus faked his death uh, using magic he had learned while in Egypt. Now, notice every single one of these replies by critics is to answer a historical claim that the tomb was empty because Jesus had been raised from the dead. And it wasn't a, a matter of, you know, so they're answering historical claims. And then look at the responses of the Christians. They didn't come back and say, oh, no, 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 you don't understand us. We don't mean to communicate that he rose in a historical, literal sense. That is like John Dominic Carlson would say, theological yuck. No, we just mean that his memory and presence can still be felt when we get together for uh, celebrating the Eucharist or something. That's not how they responded. They responded by defending the historical, literal, physical resurrection of Jesus. So everything that we would look at would suggest that the earliest Christians, the apostles, uh, preached that Jesus' resurrection was a historical event. And it was the, the basis, the foundation, or you know, a huge part of the Christian faith that has to be true. And, and in fact, in order to be a Christian, you have to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. So um, everything points to them proclaiming this. We don't have anything like this when it comes to other things, such as the saints raised at Jesus' death in Matthew. Okay, Gary, do you have anything you'd like to add to all of this? Uh, maybe a, a, a flip side uh, comment, the other side of it. I had a, uh, an experience in one of my PhD classes with one of my uh, very sharpest students who is um, rather skeptical, to tell you the truth, um, as, as, as a, a believer, but has some really uh, left-field views in a way. And he wanted to dialogue in class, and we proceeded to have a two-hour basically debate because it got a little bit uh, tough at points. But he wanted to argue that the Jewish apocalyptic view which Mike has discussed very well there from Acts chapter 2 vis-a-vis Joel and the fact that nothing happened to the sun and moon, and yet Peter seems to think that it was all fulfilled that day. This guy wanted to argue that Jewish apocalyptic is such that that truth alone allows the objection that the resurrection did not occur because the early church meant that event uh, rather apocalyptically and didn't mean it literally, which, which according to your original question, uh, Nick, would, would uh, seem to be behind some of that question. You know, if it's this, then how do you know it can't be that? And I started my, my little dialogue with him, and I, uh, the first thing I said, rather stridently, to tell you the truth, because I was a little bit bugged that he thought that was such a good argument, um, and I said, look, I can concede your entire argument, and it doesn't touch the resurrection. The argument doesn't touch the resurrection at all. And and the reason is, well, well first of all, a very important factor, Mike and I have spent a lot of time on this, including the book um, 
case of the resurrection Jesus, is what is the genre that these guys proclaimed? Do the disciples teach that Jesus was really raised from the dead? We're not asking if he did, but did they teach that he really did rise from the dead? Or are we teaching this could be something like the moon and the sun and could be part of Jewish apocalyptic. And and then I flip over to an earlier book by uh, Bart Ehrman, although he's still saying it very clearly today. And Ehrman says, do I have a problem saying that the early church writers say that they, and then he says, or at least many of them, we don't know how many he says, but he said, many of the followers of Jesus said that they saw the risen Jesus, and they really thought they did. He said, do I have a, do I have a problem saying this? He says, no, and he's, he's as strong as any evangelical at this point. And he says, no, because history proves that conclusion, proves that the disciples really thought Jesus was raised. So if we can argue that the data for the resurrection was at least a real event in the minds of those who proclaimed it, if somebody wants to give an objection to that, they have to raise another theory, but not this one. Because if the disciples really believed it was an event, certainly that does not is not in the same category as as Peter saying, "Yeah, signs in the moon and the and the sun. Yeah, this is all fulfilled." Knowing it wasn't. So if they believed that Jesus was what believed he was raised from the dead, I think that's a huge start. I could also say, too, Nick, there are some physical things. I mean, uh, the the apocalyptic genre, how sure can we be of this or that, is a um, is what you might call a full tomb view, not an empty tomb view. Apocalyptic doesn't empty tombs. So if the tomb is empty, and strangely enough, it's not one of the minimal facts we use, but, but uh, Mike had the idea of calling it a four plus one, which is a, a great comeback um, and to show you how important the empty tomb is nonetheless. Um, I had a lecture last year where I gave over 20 arguments for the empty tomb. It is as well attested in critical terms as anything around this time. And it, yeah. Yeah, um, actually, the next question I had drawn out was about the empty tomb. So why don't I just go ahead and say it and you can continue with okay. it off then. Just, All right. Yeah, go it's ahead. totally random, but I often hear that 25% of scholars do not think Jesus was buried. What are their reasons? What are some good rebuttals for those reasons? Yeah, I, I, Nick, I didn't say 25% of scholars don't think Jesus is buried. Uh Probably about every, I mean, every scholar there is thinks Jesus was buried, but they disagree as to where he was buried. You know, was it a oblong hole in the ground or was it a tomb? If so, what tomb, etc. Burial isn't the issue. Um, the, the question is, is the place that Jesus's body occupied, was that place empty again? And for the majority um, who answer this, by far the majority, uh Yes, they think that it was uh, empty, Jesus' burial place in this part. For most scholars, a tomb. By far, most scholars, a tomb. And you, Okay, now back to your question. Well, what about the 25%? That's a lot. Okay, a little bit of perspective. When I went to graduate school in the early 70s, uh, if you spoke up in class and said – I'll give you a few examples, but I'll just give you two um, – 
if you spoke up in class and said that I think Jesus performed miracles, Mike referred to them earlier. Uh, I think Jesus refer uh, Jesus performed miracles, and people in the vicinity could have watched them. And secondly, he was buried and his tomb was empty. Those two things: Jesus performed miracles, and his tomb was empty. If I had spoken up in class and said that, um, everybody in class would know that I was either an evangelical or conservative Catholic. In the 70s, those were super minority views among critical scholars uh, left of center, and oftentimes even center. They might believe them, but as far as having reasons, that you didn't speak up you know, firmly and pronounce those things. Okay, now, seen against the context of virtually no left side of the spectrum scholars allowing those two things— why is it today that virtually every scholar, even the Jesus Seminar guys, uh, Marcus Borg says some amazing things on this. Why do the, why do the? Uh, by the way, I know I'm aware that Marcus uh, Borg passed away not terribly long ago, but um, why do they concede that Jesus is a miracle worker? Now, I realize there's some question about are the things he did actually supernatural or not? But that's another issue, because we're asking, do the things in the Gospels occur? And they say yes, or things just like them. All right, and secondly, that, that's almost 100%. And where are we in the empty tomb? Oh, that's about 75%. Against the, the background that, that uh, 30 years ago, almost nobody over on the left side would concede either one of those to the to up to the view that says 100% or thereabouts, 90-some, would say Jesus was a miracle worker of some definition. And secondly, 75% saying the tomb was empty, I think it's huge. I think a huge metamorphosis has taken place on those two facts. So I think it's extremely common. And don't forget, Nick, our minimal facts is a two- pronged argument. The first one, as we say regularly, the first reason is by far the most important. The first one is we will use no fact that is not evidenced by multiple backup, multiple and strong backup. Secondly, and because of that, the vast majority of contemporary scholars, scholars, would concede these facts. But let's just say every non-Christian scholar in the world said, I no longer believe any of your facts. I really do think the time is coming um, when there's going to be some backing off of this data because they are so strong. I mean, Bart Ehrman just recently backed off the empty tomb when he did admit it. I think there's going to be more abandoning some of these facts because they're in a corner right now. They're in a corner. and But the first fact Multiple evidences from different angles is by far the most important. And if we if we have over 20 of these, and I emphasize, from a critical perspective, doing New Testament the way critics do New Testament, we have over 20 reasons to think this, the New Testament is historical. Uh, um, I think that is outstanding evidence for the MP2. Okay. Um Mike, anything you want to add to that question? I, no, nothing. Okay. Well, I'd like to remind everyone that you're listening to the Deeper Wireless podcast at this point. I've got Gary Happenmas and Mike LeCombe both here together playing Greer Christian on a resurrection. But if you're listening next week, it's going to be the Saturday before Halloween. What's a Christian to do with Halloween? Well, I'm going to have Kim Weir on. She is a co-author of a book 
Redeeming Halloween, Celebrating Without Conceding, I believe is the subtitle. We will be talking about what Christians can do with Halloween. Is it really just some big pagan holiday? What can we do for Halloween? For now, let's get back to the questions here. This one. My question is more in the realm of NDEs and what they mean for the possibility of resurrection. For those who don't know, that's near-death experiences. Instead of NDEs, I have a paranormal in mind. Ghosts, fandom, etc. In my place of work, at least a dozen people have independently told me of seeing strange shadows moving around corners, hearing voices, fearing watched, etc. I have experienced this too. There are, of course, millions of accounts of this sort of thing happening. Do you think these experiences add any further credibility to the resurrection? I guess I can uh, take that. Go ahead, Doc. Uh, okay. Um, th- there's a lot of phenomena there, Nick, and a lot of this stuff, you're right, is in the it's in the shadow realm. A lot of phenomena in this category, and it takes some very careful picking, and as some of it borders on the occult, or is the occult, I wouldn't even suggest getting into it. I do not think that applies to, to uh, the normal sort of NDE. But I will just say right off the bat, yes, there's a lot of things there that can't be verified, and people do look kind of crazy for talking that way. Okay, right up front. But on NDEs, um, I'll just say that I have I've recently finished an essay uh, for a major publication in in one of what I think one of the top five publishing houses in the world in terms of uh, scholarship, and um, I'm debating a fella who uh, on the other side, and I'll just say in a nutshell. I either I either narrate, and I, I didn't count, but I think I did probably a couple dozen highly evidenced NDEs, and then I went on and listed sources for a number more, and the figure that I mentioned in this essay is 300 evidenced NDEs, uh, not not all foolproof, but they come in from so many angles with so much evidence. Oh, you like this kind of evidence? Take these three. You like that kind of evidence? Uh, here's four more. You you like uh, cases that are like this? Okay, we'll do that. Uh, these come in from several different perspectives. I think it's virtually undeniable that near-death experiences occur and give evidence of what uh, J.P. Moreland and I called in our book, Beyond Death, a number of years ago, what we called minimalistic afterlife, because, you know, we can't track the NDE person through eternity, obviously. Um, your other, your second question, does it add anything to resurrection? What I think it adds is the probably the most common objection I hear, maybe I work because I work more on the philosophical side, whereas Mike's going to hear more New Testament objections that I hear, uh, gospel objections. I hear, yeah, well and good. Decent evidence. Yeah, I never thought about this before. But do you know how hard your mountain is to climb? This is the supernatural world, and you're asking us to believe around we don't even know about. I think the I think NDEs answer that tough question by saying, if you can't deny NDEs, um, you tell me how we don't know that that's not eternal life. Uh, sorry, that that's not life after death. And if it is. That opens up a supernatural realm, not not a miraculous realm, but a supernatural realm where the afterlife occurs. 
Now you let me talk about the resurrection and you hear it and you go, yeah, nice, but you're asking about the supernatural. Well, I think the NDEs already opened that door uh, enough that it makes the person, it should make the person open to the resurrection data. It doesn't allow them to say, yeah, nobody knows about your world, so just quit giving this evidence. It tries to divorce the evidence from the world we live in. And since there are millions, supposedly from a Gallup poll, millions of near-death phenomena have occurred in the world. This was a 1982 survey. Uh, I think it's far more common than people want to admit. So I think it does do an excellent job of opening up that realm to the evidence for the resurrection that Mike and I discuss. Mike, anything you want to add? Yeah. uh, Well, Gary's definitely the guy on the near-death experiences. And I mean, I agree with him. I would just go a little bit further. And whereas he may feel a little hesitant to talk about other paranormal experiences, I I don't feel so shy to do that. So I would add apparitions of the dead. Um, I've got a friend named Pat Ferguson. Uh, Gary knows her and her husband, uh, Doug. And Pat, when she was a junior in high school, she was awakened at 2.30 in the morning and she saw a face in front of her, an illuminated face of a friend whom she hadn't seen since middle school. So it had been a few years. Well, uh, a little over a day later, she learned from the newspaper that her friend had died at 2.30 in the morning, the very moment that she was awakened and saw that face. So that those kind of paranormal experiences, apparitions of the dead, would suggest a, um, a supernatural dimension to reality. I would also mention the demonic. I would not encourage anybody to, you know, get involved in that kind of stuff, of course, by like Ouija boards and things like that. But um, I, the demonic is something that is very real. Uh, I have a friend who lives in Michigan. Her name is Kim. And when she was a junior in high school, She uh, was dating this guy, and they and another couple were in the basement of her house playing a Ouija board. And her mom and her grandmom had all been involved in witchcraft. And the Ouija board said something communicated that Kim's boyfriend was going to be beheaded that day, was going to be killed and beheaded that day. And everybody laughed except Kim. And she said, forget this. Uh, No, this stuff is... This is scary. This is real. This is serious. And and she put the game away and she said, let's go eat. And so they went to McDonald's, but she made them take routes that were different than they normally would take to that McDonald's. Well, everything turned out well that day. A year later, and this was on Halloween, I believe, uh, a year later, it might have been the day before Halloween or something like that, but a year later, she and her boyfriend, plan- they're seniors in high school. They planned to go out for dinner, and she didn't hear from her boyfriend. He was late, and it comes to find out that he had been putting some branches in a wood chipper, and it caught him and pulled him into the wood chipper and killed him because it decapitated him. So it happened on the same day. It was just a year later that it happened. Mm-hmm. So um, this is like a paranormal, a demonic kind of thing. Um, I mean, I could name a number of other demonic things, things I've discussed with Gary. I may have discussed them with you, Nick, um, that I personally experienced. I would add things, other paranormal phenomena, such as um, I've mentioned this in other uh, forums, but um, a professor professor of anthropology 
at Florida State University named Bruce Grindle. He died uh, four years ago in 2012. Um, but as an atheist, in 1967, I believe it was, he went over and spent time with the Sicilia people in Uganda, Uganda. And as an atheist, he went to see a death divination where they would, you know, do a ritual over the burial of a guy. And he actually witnessed the corpse come to life and get up and dance and play drums. And, and he said it, it terrified him and really shook him up. He ran out of the camp, the village. I mean, this is out in the bush. And he ran out as fast as he could, as far as he could. They didn't catch up to him until the next day. And he claims that everybody else there saw it as well. So it, it wasn't a hallucination that he experienced. Um, it was something that everybody saw. They saw this guy uh, this corpse come back to life and dance and move and play drums and everybody saw it. And um, I spoke with one of his former students uh, personally, and he said, yeah, um, Grindel was no longer an atheist after that. Mm. Um, and it was something that disturbed him for the rest of his life. After he wrote the article, I think it was in 1987, 83, he didn't want to discuss it anymore. It, it really bothered him. But he gave up his atheism because, I mean, at, at that point, you know there's a supernatural dimension. Finally, I would add that there are radically answered prayer. I mean, I could name a number of these. I'm not talking about just plain answers to prayer where you just pray something, you know, God, I'm flying to California. Help me to get there safely. And then it happens. Well, is that an answered prayer? Well, maybe, maybe not. Uh, I'm talking about something really, really, really radical that is well beyond the realm of coincidence. I think you put those kinds of things together like apparitions of the dead, demonic experiences, you know, the zombie kind of thing that Grindel experienced, radically answered prayer, near-death experiences that can be verified, like Gary mentions. You put all that together, and I think the evidence for a, super a supernatural dimension to reality is so strong that one can no longer deny it and still reasonably call themselves a realist. And it's within that evidence, once you realize there's a supernatural dimension, that resurrections are very much at home. Um, it's, it's no longer implausible to, to think that a miracle um, can occur, such as a resurrection, if there's a supernatural dimension and God who exists in that dimension wanted to raise Jesus. Then it's not at all implausible. Do we have evidence outside of a church that corroborates for martyrdom of the apostles and Paul and James. Yes. What else do you want to know? <laughs> I have I have an anachronism I use to help me remember that, but there are a number of ancient sources. So the anachronism I use is um, Lieutenant J. Dopic. And so each of those letters would be uh, Luke, Tertullian, John, um, uh, Dionysus of Corinth, Origen, Polycarp, Ignatius, and Clement of of uh, of Rome. So you look at all those, and they uh, they do mention the martyrdom or the suffering, at least the suffering, if not the martyrdom, of the uh, disciples of Jesus. Uh, and then you can have some others for Paul. Yeah, yeah uh, Nick, I I told you briefly about this conference I was this weekend. Um, I also heard uh, at this conference, I heard Sean McDowell um, give a couple lectures, one on the subject of his doctoral dissertation, The Fate of the Apostles. And he argues positively for several of the key apostles and 
actually uses a uh, criteria, a set of criteria for historical reliability that's not unlike uh, Mike's, uh, the, the criteria that he sets up in the Resurrection of Jesus uh, volume, uh, his dissertation, Mike's. And um, uh, Sean thinks that there's a, a good, good basis for about a, finding the sources for about a half dozen of these guys. But, but to try to get to the core of it, when I'm lecturing on the resurrection and can't just spend all day doing the fate of the apostles, I try to make the point that when Paul goes to Jerusalem in, in Galatians 1, there's three people that are talking about the gospel. That's Paul, James, the brother of Jesus, and Peter. And by the way, Bartram and Colt says that this is one of the two strongest arguments for the historical Jesus because Paul— uh, Gary, I think you mean John and not Paul, right? When Paul goes, goes to Galatia, he meets John, James, the brother of Jesus, and Peter. No, 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 no. I, I said it the right way. Um, in Galatians chapter 1— it's Paul, James, the brother of Jesus, and Peter. Um, in Galatians 2, when he comes back, it's those three guys plus John. Okay, my bad. I misunderstood. That's okay. But what I'm saying is, of those four people, and, and it's pretty interesting that you, that John would be in chapter 2 and the others in chapter 1, because we have first century sources for at least three of them, uh, for the martyrdoms of at least Paul, Peter, and James, the brother of Jesus. John, who chapter-wise is removed, you know, to the second chapter, is also one that the data are removed just a little bit, because we have a second century source for John's martyrdom. It's it's more questionable, and I will allow that. So I'm saying, yeah, maybe John, but at least the other three names, and maybe all four, um, we have first century data for the martyrdom. And Mike makes a really good point. The, the point here, at least the way I do the minimal facts, the point isn't these guys died for their faith. The point is they were willing to die. Somebody who repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly puts themselves in death's path and doesn't shrink away from what their critics might do to them, that person's got a reason for doing it or they're nuts. Uh, you know, they've got issues. Um, but the fact that disciples did it over and over again, and there's good evidence that the major ones died, depending on what we do with John, you'd have all the major ones, but uh, we have good data there, and I think that's enough, and of course, people are going to say, I don't know, Nick, or probably one of your next questions, but someone's going to say, well, a lot of people die today, and uh, the key there is you'll f- a lot of people die for their faith, exactly, and they're usually political or religious topics. I don't doubt that some communists have died for their atheistic, communistic views. Um, I was always impressed when uh, Buddhist priests set themselves on fire to protest ethically, to protest the war in Vietnam and killing. Um, I respect that. But you're going to look very hard to find any kind of scenario where people especially repeatedly, are willing to die, and and some of whom do die, for what they know to be false. That's different. And what's so unique about these apostles are, and I think Bart Ehrman is onto this as one of the strongest arguments, who would know better than Paul, 
James, Peter, and maybe John, who would know better than them whether or not they saw the risen Jesus? Who would know that better? And so when they're willing to die, since the resurrection is the center of the gospel and the gospel is the reason they died, that what, what they proclaimed, it's the center of their message, who better than them would know that they really saw Jesus? And as the, each one of them dies, I think they say that is outstanding evidence that I have not given up believing the resurrection. I know I'm going to be with Jesus. And like Jesus said to the fellow on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. That's where I'm going right now. Paul says in Philippians 1, also accepted by critics, it's better by far to die and be with Christ. Tell me how we explain that in their beliefs if we don't think uh, they believed that Jesus was raised from the dead. So their martyrdom and willingness to be martyred is extremely evidential in my uh, opinion. Well, I'd like to let the listeners know that if you want some more information on this, I actually did interview Sean McDowell on this very topic. Go back to June 4th of this year and hear my interview of him on the fate of the apostles. Good move, Nick. Okay. Now this one, uh, this is the kind of question that keeps coming up regularly and it's more in line for you, I think, Mike. The time of Jesus, at the time of Jesus' death, the bodies of many holy people were resurrected. They were in Jerusalem meeting with people. Matthew 27, 52 to 53. This is a significant miracle, and there's not too much text to explain what happened. What is going on in this passage? Well, Mike, if you've done anything, we can certainly say you've drawn people's attention to Matthew 27. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well... You know, if, if someone wants to read about it in depth, they can either read it in my uh, my view in my big resurrection book, or they could even go to my website, risenjesus.com, go under resources, articles, and they want to look at the virtual roundtable. And this was a discussion between um, uh, Paul Copan and, uh, let's see, Craig Blomberg. And Michael Kruger, Chuck Quarles, Danny Aiken, myself, and uh, was moderated by Heath Thomas. And uh, so I was, you know, the whole thing was about this, uh, you know, taking issue with the inner, the interpretation that I presented in my book. Um, and so I, I give uh, even more information about it and, and, and answer my interlocutors in, in that virtual round table that they can read, just read it. And um, so in essence, I would say what I, I think that Matthew is probably doing there. And I've, I've gone from being like 80, 20 to uh, maybe 50, 50, and maybe I'm at 60, 40 now in thinking that Matthew is using some sort of maybe apocalyptic language there or special effects that he doesn't intend for us to understand those raised saints in a historical manner. And the things that kind of lead me to that is we find examples of such language uh, in both Jewish literature with Josephus and Greco-Roman literature. Um, So, I mean, like Josephus, when the temple was about ready to be destroyed in the year 70, he talks about how um, the uh, things went dark that fighting was seen in the skies, that um, the doors to the temple, which took about 20 men to open, they opened by themselves. A cow gave birth to a lamb. Uh, There was uh, a comet that was seen. When you 
look at the death of Julius Caesar, you have multiple ancient authors writing, and Virgil, who is certainly writing poetry, mentions things such as uh, intestines were seen outside of cattle, streams stopped moving, Mount Etna erupted, there was a comet, uh, that there was fighting in the heavens, um, that pale phantoms were seen walking around at sunset, things like that. And when you get to uh, Cassius Dio, who mentions, uh, I think it was Julius Caesar conquering Egypt, but I, I forgot which, um, or it could have been the visit of a, of a later emperor uh, to Egypt. I don't remember. But at that point, it talked about how the doors to the Temple of Zeus or, or Jupiter, same thing, um, which took many men to open, opened by themselves. Fighting was seen in the heavens, that uh, ghosts were seen walking around, um, uh, that, or there were voices heard in the woods. Uh, there was an eclipse of the sun. Anyway, you see a lot of this stuff going on, and most of these talk about an eclipse of the sun and a comet involved. Well, what's interesting is, uh, John Ramsey, who's an emeritus professor of Greek and the classics at the University of Illinois in Chicago, several years ago, uh, within our, our, our 21st century, he published a catalog of comets mentioned in the Greco-Roman literature. And um, so he has all of these, and you can see at times where you can verify uh, uh, often when a comet actually took place, because we know uh, they could be seen because of, you know, maybe it was Halley's Comet or the Hale-Bopp Comet or something like that, or it's reported or corroborated in the Chinese or the Korean literature, which they would have had little, no contact with the, the Romans. So um, we can verify on occasion that there was a comet. Well, in some of this literature where it talks about a comet and an eclipse of the sun, we can verify the comet was there, but the eclipse of the sun was not. And we have, there's, NASA has a website where you can go to it, you can enter the year and click on a geographical region, and it will tell you whether there was an eclipse visible within that region that year. So again, we can verify that there was a comet that was visible, but the eclipse of the sun, none took place that was visible that year within where the author would have been. So this creates a, a difficulty for the historian because we can see that ancient authors in the Greco-Roman literature would commingle historical portents, what they consider to be portents, with fictional ones that they did to heighten this, uh, the drama of it. So then we got to ask, is this what's going on in the, in the Gospels? You know, was, were some of these six phenomena that Matthew mentioned historical while some of the others weren't? Um, was Matthew just doing some of the same thing as these Greco-Roman authors were doing by mentioning pale phantoms walking around at sunset? And he just called it many of the saints were raised at that point. Um, it's, it's just difficult to tell. It really is. But you do have theological difficulties here. Are they raised with a resurrection body or are they raised in the same kind of body like Lazarus, Jairus's daughter, or the widow's son? If it's the latter... Um, well, then we've got a problem because they're homeless. They have no food or drink for probably 36 hours, at least 36 hours, 40 hours or more, um, because they're in their tombs. They don't come out until Jesus is raised. So they're hungry, they're thirsty, they're homeless. What happens to them? They've got some near-death experiences, perhaps. Why don't we hear about these? Why is it that the early church fathers 
typically don't mention these guys until about 300 years later. And why is it that some early church fathers will mention the darkness and the earthquake and things like that, but they don't mention the raised saints? Um, so I, I think that's kind of interesting. Now, if they're raised in a resurrection body, you've got a contradiction with Paul, who says that Christ is the first fruits of the dead, 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty. And these would have been the first fruits because they were raised at Jesus' death rather than at after Jesus had been raised. So you do have some theological challenges here, as well as historical ones. I think it's difficult to ascertain with any kind of confidence of whether or not Matthew meant for these to be understood in a historical sense. Um, I lean toward the view that he did not intend it in that way. Um, based on reflecting on it for for a few years now. But, you know, it's not a hill for me to die on. Um, That's just where my convictions lay at the moment. But as we said earlier, this has nothing to do with interpreting the resurrection in anything other than a historical sense, because the evidence that this is how the disciples meant to interpret it is just far too strong. Gary, anything you want to add? No, I... um as I was sitting here uh, listening, um, I hadn't heard that account Josephus uh, for a long time. And um, doubtless some of uh, Mike, I don't know, some people, Mike, have you had some people uh, say to you, well, have they taken the other way out and said, uh, maybe Josephus really did see those guys fighting up in the clouds. I mean, did they go that way and try to say he meant it historically? I have not had anyone. And even those who challenge me, the evangelicals who don't particular are not particular fond of, of the apocalyptic way of understanding Matthew's race saints. Um, I'll ask them, I'll, I'll, I'll tell them about what Josephus said and I'll say, Tell me honestly, do you really think that a cow gave birth to a lamb in the temple? Yeah, right that's, even, that, that's even a tougher example. Yeah, and, and they always say no. They say, okay, well, you believe that the Jews used apocalyptic language. So, and this is in a historical account of the temple uh, being destroyed. So um, you can mix the apocalyptic uh, language with historical accounts. And again, even Craig Blomberg would acknowledge this when it comes to Jesus's Olivet Discourse. So um, we see the apocalyptic imagery language being commingled with historical data uh, when it comes to Jewish and Christian accounts. So I I don't know why there's such a hesitancy amongst some evangelicals. And and I'll be honest with you, there have been a, a few who have come up to me in the last couple of years and said, you know what? I don't know that I'd say this publicly yet, but, um, you know, I've really been thinking about that view and I, that you present it in your book. And even though I was against it at first, I think you're right. Um, so, uh, you know, again, I don't think it's I don't think it's a big deal, really. Um, I don't think it's a hill to die on. It's just no big deal. I didn't think it was a big deal when I put it in the book. In fact, uh, the book came out in 2010. I had been saying it publicly and during debates because the, the question of Matthew's raised saints comes up on a frequent, a regular basis. And I'd been saying since 2006, I mean, you can see it in the video of my debate with Ali Ati at uh, the University of California, Davis. 
and uh, during the Q&A or sometime during the debate, I think it was during the Q&A, where I, I said it there. I think it's apocalyptic imagery or not meant to be understood in a historical sense. I'd been saying it for four years publicly, and nobody ever pushed back or said anything. Um, it wasn't until Norman Geisler and then Al Mohler and Paige Patterson came up and, and that it became a big deal. And, you know, William Lane Craig took that view, uh, pretty much the same view I take on it, that we have leanings toward that way, but we really don't know. You got Michael Byrd, another member of the Evangelical Theological Society, who takes the view that I presented in the book and uh, other scholars. So, you know, why I'm the one that is attacked <laughs> and not the others, I don't know. Well, at this point, Akramana, when you're listening to a Deeper Wireless podcast, everything we need to do is a listener supported by people like you. And if you're really liking a show like this, please consider ways you can benefit this ministry and help us out. And if you go to our new website, deeperwaterosapologetics.com, there are some ways you can make some donations there and such. You can see a link to buy books that we have on Amazon. Those are ones that I've either written myself, such as uh, A Creed for the Ages, The Apostles' Creed in Today's Christian, or ones I've co-written, like Groundless, or Defining Inerrancy, or God and Natural Disasters. And then also, guys, if you want to get in good with the ladies, your women, the woman in your life, I should say, probably likes jewelry. So you can go and buy some jewelry the access code is love. There's a link there. My friend Lena Cluster will help you. 25% of everything you purchase, she'll donate to Deeper Waters. So you can make a don't you can buy something special and make a donation at the same time. And you can buy it for that screw up that you made in the past to make up for it. Or you can buy it to ma- as future insurance for that screw up that you're going to make in the near future. And if you can't do any of these please consider also going on iTunes and leaving a favorable review. I love to see them. Of course, the main way you can support us is by donation. And at this point, I'll turn to Mike since we go for the same way to make a donation. So, Mike, how can they make a donation to me and how can they make one to you? Well, it's very simple. You just go to my website, risenjesus.com, and go to the place uh, tab on the menu that says Donate. And you go there, we have a secured web page, and, um, and we use the best program for that, so it's the most secured. Um, and you can do it on your credit card. Uh, you can do it on a one-time basis. You can do it on a recurring monthly basis. Uh, you can also, it gives you instructions if you want to set it up where you just have it electronically transferred from your bank account uh, every month it, to the ministry, it does, you can have it set up that way. And of course you can stop at any time or it gives you an address that you can just send a check to. And all we have, we have a 501 C three. So all donations are tax deductible as allowable by law. Um, if you wanted to go to Nick, uh, to specifically to Nick's, uh, ministry, then what you would do is after you set up or make your donation, you send an email to us, which you can write there on the website and just tell us, you know, give us your name and, and just because it will go through, we'll see that you became a donor and just say that this is earmarked for Nick and uh, we'll make sure it goes to his ministry. Mm-hmm. And if you want to also, you can contact me or my wife or Michael Debbie through Facebook as well. And there I have a record of it. Some of you have done that for me. That really helps. 
and we'll make sure we get the donation. Now, um, Gary, do you have uh, any organization you'd like to be part donate to? I don't. I think, Nick, that I'm the odd one out here. Mm-hmm. Right, so I, uh, Gary wants you to keep your money. <laughs> well, they can always give it to great Christian organizations like World Help or ones that are helping folks in crisis, but not uh, not that I have anything set up personally, no. Now, let's move on to another question, and this one's related to what we were just talking about. How do you think the three-hour darkness occurred? What was the instrument God used for that? Could it have been an eclipse, super thick clouds, maybe? And I'd add, I'd add in, the questioner didn't mention this, but I think we could have a little bit more evidence for this one because of a testimony of Faldus and Julius Africanus and Phlegon, I believe. So who wants to take this question? Well, I'll, I'll be happy to take it since it deals with that. I think the more important question is, did the darkness occur, or is it one of those uh, part of the apocalyptic uh, imagery, just like the Ray Saints? Because, you know, you, you see about, instead of saying eclipse of the sun, it could have been the darkness that Matthew was referring to. Or um, instead of eclipse of the sun, Virgil talks about Mount Etna erupting, and it left all this darkness, um, the volcanic ash. So, um, I mean, we can give naturalistic explanations. I think the first question to ask is, did Matthew intend for us to understand that historically? Now, of course, Matthew's not the first to mention the darkness. Mark, followed by Luke, mentions it as well. Interestingly, John doesn't mention any of the portents that are provided by the synoptics at Jesus' death. So, but I think the fact that Mark has it might be reason for us to think of it as historical. Um, but it, we could ask, is that apocalyptic imagery as well? Um, if we conclude that it is not, that it was meant to be understood historical, then we could you know, posit any number of things. It could be God caused the darkness through any supernatural means. You know, who knows? Uh, eclipses of the sun don't last three hours. Um, so who, who knows what it would have been otherwise? Gary? Yeah, um, in the case you... Mentioned uh, Nick regarding Thallus. Uh, there's some uncertainties there. Um, scholars yeah. are not sure of the fifty, the the year fifty two. That's frequently mentioned, but they'll they'll often say things like, "But he, you know, it was thereabouts that he wrote this." Okay, so it looks like Thallus is pre Gospels. Um, now another. Tough question is Thallus does not mention, as far as we know, the, the portion of Thallus that is cited by Julius Africanus does not mention Jesus' name. Um, it does mention uh, the eclipse, the, the um, darkness, and um, a grad student, uh, um, a PhD student of mine, interestingly enough, just sent me a historical uh, source in a uh, geological journal saying that that uh, we have a, a documentation now of this exactly this sort of event occurring uh, 29 AD, I believe it is, uh, plus or minus. In other words, it's pretty close to that time, but it's hard to determine the exact year. And uh, that that's that's just been been ascertained in a non-Christian journal. So 
I, I think we've got some things to go on that that uh, indicate that this is uh, very possibly. I mean, I shouldn't say very possibly. I'd say probably likely that this is an actual event. And um, at any rate, it's interesting that the that both the source Dallas and the uh, uh, geological uh, research that that I'm mentioning here, they're both secular sources. So, so I think that's uh, worthwhile, and I think that's uh, good to admit to the uh, uh, to the discussion here. By the way, um, let me just you know I can dig this up for your your listeners. I might have it right here. I can give the name of that. Uh, here it is. The name of the journal is the International Geology Review from July 2012. And uh, it is a um, a research that I said 29, I'm sorry. It's in the earthquake in particular. Now, of course, the earthquake can certainly uh, darken the sky. But the earthquake is dated to A.D. 31, plus or minus five years. A.D. 31, plus or minus five years. The International Geology Review, July 2012. So, so it's only uh, talking about the earthquake. It's not talking about the darkness? You know, Mike, I'd have to go back and look at that. Um, uh, I, he, sent, he wrote this to me and gave me a few particulars and then, then later he sub, he uh, attached the article, the uh, geology article. I've not read the article yet. In fact, I just got it like in the last 24 hours. So I haven't opened it up and read it. But from his summary, it could say darkness right there. But uh, I saw the word earthquake and I was just looking quickly and I saw 31 AD plus or minus five years. So I have to check that. I, I don't know how impressive uh, documentation of an earthquake would be, if you go to my big book and my section on Matthew's Raised Saints, in which I'm, I'm actually answering Crossan, um, who claims that that is myth um, and arguing that the resurrection of Jesus is just more of the same, cut from the same cloth. Um, I mentioned in there that earthquakes, and I, I list tons of, uh, a, a lot of sources from that period, Tacitus and others, were earthquakes throughout the Roman Empire at that point, devastating earthquakes that would destroy entire cities were quite common. Right. Uh, Mike, also this, I, I don't know, I'm at a disadvantage from not having opened up this article before we talked today. But it does also say from my uh, PhD student's uh, summary that uh, it is in Israel. It is in Israel. So that, that um, you like you say, it, there's a lot of them. But um, since earthquake was also mentioned in the text, that's at least, you know, apropos. Uh, Archaeological data um, sometimes uh, back up things in general and not particularly. So it's the kind of thing I guess you'd put in a footnote and say, yeah, you know, see this source, especially being a secular journal. But but again, I have not read it. That's all I can tell you. Let's go to the next question here. Why don't you guys move into a more maximal facts approach like Tim McGrew has done rather than a minimal facts one? Is it really of that great a value if a majority of scholars agree on something? Well, you want to go for that, Doc? Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in. Um, you can. 
And if you want to go with maximal scholars, and I'm assuming this question that the quote unquote maximum maximal scholarship falls in the direction of uh, the Gospels, that's fine. Go for it. I had already mentioned earlier uh, Jim Wallace's approach to that. Many others have done it. Mike mentioned uh, Blomberg's books. Uh, I mentioned Bauckham's. There's a lot of good th- uh, Barnett, the Australian. Historian, there's a lot of great stuff there. But why would I go to minimal facts? Um, Nick, I'll, I'll make a bolder comment than just act like, well, we've got two paths here and it's the path I take. Uh, I don't think there's any question that the minimal facts argument is a stronger argument. And there are many examples where sometimes lesser of something is better than more of something. And I think the advantage of the minimal facts is the facts we're using are so few and they're so well accepted that when you go maximum scholarship and reliability, having done this for many, many years with a lot of skeptics, I'll tell you what's going to happen. You're going to bog down in the details. They're going to question a lot of different things. And it doesn't mean we don't have answers, but you better have a lot of time. You better have a lot of meetings with this person, you better, and if it's a one-night stand, so to speak, at a university, uh, you know, not sure you're going to be as successful pulling it off, sure, you can write 50 emails back and forth, but it's it's a larger approach, it's, it's detailed, you have to work your way through it, and then personally, I think it's not as tight an argument, and I'll give, an argue, I'll give you a question, um, I think this can be answered, but I'll often say to students, uh, you're no doubt bothered that um, uh, that uh, we can present this data and somebody can question all this. And so we're going to take uh, a lesser route and people come up and uh, question. Well, what if they successfully question a couple of the uh, the facts in the like Mike? like Mike just raised about the earthquakes. If they say a few things, sometimes you get the impression you got to get pull, you have to pull everything off. But here's an, here's a question. Uh, when we make a general reliability case, evangelicals will generally use sources like Tacitus, Josephus, maybe Suetonius, maybe plenty other cases. Certainly Josephus and uh, Tacitus, Ehrman uses Gospel of Peter, Gospel of Thomas. Okay, if we use some of those sources, uh, and, and by using them in our reliability argument, we're saying, for example, that Tacitus and uh, uh, maybe Plutarch or maybe uh, Josephus are good sources. I often cite Moses Hattis, the well-known uh, historian, who says Tacitus was the best placed Roman historian. But it seems like you get yourself in a corner because if Tacitus is a great historian and you got to use some of those guys to validate your reliable case, why when Tacitus says that he ha- he's talked to eyewitnesses about miracles produced by Caesars, when he mentions those arguments, why do we say yeah, well, I only need your argument on Jesus. I don't need your argument on the emperor's miracles. Now, there are some fantastic comebacks to those emperor's miracles, but the point is we find it pretty easy to digress 
from Tacitus or Josephus, when Josephus talks about rabbis who, who uh, did miracles, we find it fairly easy to digress from those points and just use the points we want. But that you could be accused at that point of, of special pleading, and unless you're really good with the data, it's, it's not going to be easy to get around those questions. But when we go to minimal facts argument, we're using specific facts that critics agree with. They can't say, no, it's not historical. And then by the more important point is each of these evidences are multiply attested. We're not just saying, well, Tacitus is on my side here, or even Tacitus and Josephus are on my side here, like with the existence of Jesus. We're saying we've got multiple evidences. I just used the example earlier of over 20 arguments for the empty tomb alone. Um, I just think when you use a general, uh, a specific amount of data, everyone's on your side. And let me say it again, more importantly, the evidence is on our side. We are much better off because the person's in a corner. And in my experience, Critics usually don't even come back. When I dialogue with James Crossley to give one example, an agnostic New Testament scholar who calls himself an unbeliever, when I laid out six minimal facts, he, he all he said was, yeah, you can have all six of those. I concede all six. They're, they're as good, if not better, than the other facts in the New Testament. That's how the dialogue started. So to me, I just think to have that common core if it's enough to make the point, why do the reliability argument in a single setting when you might have more facts than you need and you want to get back to the resurrection? Um, people people lose track of the argument before you get to the end of it. Um, I would rather use fewer if we can build the case for the resurrection on the few arguments that are better attested, and that's exactly what the minimal facts uh, do. Well, I, I agree with Gary on everything there. Um, the time constraints thing, I think, is huge. Um, it's kind of like classical versus evidential apologetics or historical apologetics. If you argue for God's existence, you know, you can build a cumulative argument for the resurrection. If you first argue for God's existence and then the historical evidence for the resurrection, you can build a stronger case. But who has the time for that when you're talking to someone, especially if you're lecturing? So in the same way, why, you know, build a comprehensive case that goes beyond minimal facts I mean, if you want to do it in a book, that's fine, but you just don't have time to do that during lectures. Um, you know, Tim is Tim McGrew is one of my favorite people. I mean, he's one of the most Christ, one of the most Christ-like people I've ever met. I just don't go with his method in this way. Um, I, I think strategically thinking, at least not from a you know, if I'm just studying New Testament, but if I'm looking at it from an, a perspective of apologetics. The broader your case is, when you start adding to the minimal facts, things that aren't granted by all the scholars, things for which the evidence isn't quite as strong, then you're, yeah, you provide some more evidence, but you're also providing more targets uh, for skeptics to attack. Um, and when they do that, when they attack, like what you, you know, say all of a sudden you throw in stuff from the Gospels and then, and then all of a sudden you got to you have to defend the historical reliability of the gospels because now they call into question the authorship they call into question whether there's eyewitness testimony they call in uh, to question the fact of miracles and all of that so now you've got to answer all those and in some of those cases like with Matthew's raised saints and some of the phenomena of Jesus death you just got to throw your arms up and say you know what i just don't know 
what was intended there. Well, if, if you're being honest, that is. And um, at least if, well, if I'm being honest, I have to say that. And if many are being honest, they have to say, well, I, I don't know. It could go one way or the other. Well, then all of a sudden, the impression that that can kind of leave with some is that, oh, there's a weakness in the argument. Well, there's not a weakness in the argument. It's just I can't confirm that little bit of my entire argument. But the impression it may leave is, oh, well, there's a weakness there. I wonder about in all these other areas. What about in some of those minimal facts? And unless one is a skilled debater, and it, it takes practice, and I fail in this many times, um, you know, you have to nail things down and come right back and say, yep, but this is a peripheral detail. It, my, my case for the resurrection of Jesus it does not hinge on this, uh, uh, this data over here. Uh, being understood or interpreted or being uh, as I'm doing so or it being true. And uh, and by the way, even if you do do that, then you're going to have some uber evangelicals saying, well, wait a minute, he's denying inerrancy then. And, um, whoa, you're giving away the whole farm now if you're saying that we can't defend this certain part. When you're doing this historically, not theologically. So I think by doing a more comprehensive case, beyond the minimal facts, or at least far beyond the minimal facts. Um, I mean, you can have it in a book and, and read it for your edification, but I think in your dialogues with non-believers, I don't think it's the way to go. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> well, let's uh, go to one more question. It's going to have to be the last one here, and that's because we're running short on time. Is it plausible that the Cyprus had different psychological experiences that they rationalized into the Eastern narrative? That's yours, Doc. Um, Nick, let, let me make sure I understand your question, uh-huh. or maybe just maybe you just want to repeat it. Uh, subjective phenomena that is they it, read. Go, go ahead. Is it plausible that the disciples had different psychological experiences that they rationalized into the Eastern narrative? Um, do you want to mention one in particular? I mean, there's. I could I could address it in general. Sure. In general, I think. Okay, well, in general is fine. Um, th- I'll just say that there are. I'll do, I'll do what Mike just said a moment ago. In in the uh, uh, in the interest of full disclosure, I will say that several of these have been brought up over the years. They're not just one or two, but I think it's very very clear that we've we've got the. The, the floor on this one, I mean, I really, hallucinations are by far the most common in this category. I, I note a couple others. Uh, I name a couple um, theories that hadn't been named previously, but these subjective things. But the problems with hallucinations would involve things like group group hallucinations, which are not known in the literature. I know of two studies now, one done in the psychological literature going back, I forgot how many years, 25 years maybe, and one in the medical literature going back about the same time. Both researchers um, in published material say that there is no confirmed data for collective hallucinations. And I say confirmed. I mean, you might hear, oh, this woman down the street, she said this. But I mean, there's nothing in the annals of psychological or medical thought for group hallucinations. Um, secondly, 
the uh, a view like hallucinations would be go back to my earlier example would be an example of um, a closed tomb view not an open tomb view somehow you got to get jesus out of the tomb so with hallucination you have to come up with another tomb theory so now you have to have two theories that are right and you have to keep going through the the data here now let me just use as an example uh, bart ehrman bart ehrman up until recently has been fairly he's guarded but he's been fairly open about taking the hallucination theory i don't know if he's been slapped a lot on this mike's one of the ones who's uh, done it no doubt and their dialogues but but uh, in his late in his second from last book bart ehrman says that he's not gonna he's to use mike's phrase he's not gonna die on that hill He's not going to die in that hill anymore. And in this, and in this book, second from last one, he argues that um, we don't know what was hallucinations. And further, he says, we don't even have to pick a naturalistic theory. And further, he says, uh, he said that there's two ways to know. So I disagree with him, but he said there's two ways to know something through facts and through faith. Okay, whatever you do with that. But then Bart Ehrman says that you cannot prove Jesus, uh, historically, that Jesus is raised from the dead. And just as the Christian reader, no doubt, is starting to get bothered, whoa, 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 I disagree with you, he finishes his thought. And here's the rest of Bart Ehrman's thought. You cannot prove the resurrection historically, and you cannot disprove the resurrection historically. Whoa, that's a little different. Who's saying that today? So here's one of the best skeptics today used to take hallucination he's backed off doesn't doesn't say that's his view and so oh by the way and he says he's not as i already mentioned he does, he's not going to take a naturalistic theory now he said i just kind of leave him out there and i can't disprove the resurrection so you know i think we're on pretty good grounds the the early creedal statement in paul which bart Ehrman himself dates back to uh 30 to 32 a.d two years after the cross it has three group appearances mentioned right in those few verses. The appearance of the 12, the appearance of the apostles, the appearance to 500 brethren um, at one time. So, and, and I just gave two critiques here, empty tomb and group appearances. I have a, uh, an article on my website, GaryHabermas.com, and uh, under the articles tab, it's on the hallucination theory. I have 19 refutations based on different forms of the hallucination theory people can go there and take a much a much slower detailed look at the different views and how the refutations match up each of those views mike anything you want to add uh no i agree with everything uh, the only thing i would say is you know when you're considering various hypotheses and and you're weighing them according to strictly controlled historical method. You, you don't look at just possibilities. You look at which hypothesis best explains the facts. And, you know, you still have to be able to explain. You can't just say various psychological phenomena, different psychological phenomena for all these, these the, the apostles. You want to be able to explain, and if it's a hypothesis, if it's going to have explanatory power, you can't just leave it uh, you know, unexplained like uh, a Michael Goulder does and say, well, we just get the idea. We, we're not going to say it's hallucinations 
or delusions, but we get the idea. Well, we really don't if you're not going to explain it. So what are you going to say? Well, the group hallucinations are the most difficult, uh, that and Paul. So if you say group hallucinations, well, we know that those things are extremely rare, if not impossible, like Gary said. So how do you explain the group up here? Well, mass hysteria. Well, mass hysteria is auditory, not visual. Well, group think. Well, then you got some other problems, and then you got the explanatory scope because you've got. To, it's not just accounting for the group appearances. You got to account for Paul as well. What led Paul? You know, Paul is not going to be a part of the group think. There, he's he's not he's not grieving over Jesus' death. He's glad Jesus was dead. He's out to destroy the movement Jesus had created. And see, Jesus would have been the very last person in the world that Paul would have wanted or expected to see. So wouldn't explain that. And why is it that all of them seem to come to the belief that Jesus was raised physically, bodily from the dead? I think you take all those things together and, and, and you say, whatever hypothesis I have has to explain all of those and do so where it doesn't appear ad hoc, which various psychological phenomena it certainly has that appearance. Um, I think the resurrection hypothesis, you're looking for the one that best explains the facts, and the resurrection hypothesis comes out far better than all of its competitors. Well, guys, I, I, I have to say to the listeners, I'm sorry, but we could not get to all the questions in time. There's still plenty more here. We could do a whole other show if we needed to on all these. Um, uh, Gary, do you have a, a blog website where people can get in touch if they want to find out more? Yes. Uh uh, uh, GaryHabermas.com is the website, and there's a number of articles, books, other things on the website. Nothing is for sale on the website. Uh, in my estimation, it's about, uh, I may mean at least, at ministry and that possibility. So, And not just on the question of uh, resurrection and evidence for Christianity in general, but we, we started the program talking about doubt. There's a whole lot of material on the site about doubt, and I would uh, welcome people to go there if they have specific questions and want to get some answers. Mike, same to you. Yeah, uh, go to risenjesus.com. I've got a lot of videos there of debates uh, in which I've been involved, lectures that I've done, articles. Um, so, yeah. A lot of that's on there. If they'd like to contact me to have me come speak for an event, they can do so on the website. Mm-hmm. And um, you all have any last words you have to leave for the audience of Deeper Waters? Gary Habermas is the man when it comes to the resurrection. No question about that. Did you say last word? Yeah. I, I'm sorry, uh, Nick, that I've uh, missed a few words here and there. Uh, for people who want a a a pretty detailed, more popular account of this, I would say our book, uh, The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus, Kriegel uh, Publications from 04, I think. And if you wanted a very detailed look, I would again recommend Mike's book, The Resurrection of Jesus, on the historic, uh, historiographical approach, a new historiographical approach to apply this data. Hopefully we'll have more stuff coming out years from now and hopefully we'll see both of you back here again sometime thank you nick for now i'm nick peters i can know and brett next week kim byer is going to be on we're talking about redeeming halloween for now i am nick peters and i am signing off